I, I wanted to talk a little just around the culture of generosity. Cultures are great things. And one of the things that this church started was really just to kind of get people to come was to have the croissants and the different goodies that you have before the meeting and after the meeting. And I remember even when you were meeting in different venues and hotels, and everybody used to come just for the chow, you know. And uh, look what happened. It got you to stay. (laughs) And some of you are nodding quite vigorously because you know that the moment those things are not there, you're going to let the people know about it. Oh, where's where's the stuff, you know? (laughs) And that's a culture in the church, isn't it? It's just a culture of being friendly and being welcoming. You know, those things are absolutely essential. And I think if I read through the church, I read through the scriptures, then I see that that is really how the church should be is a community. And one of the things that was highlighted this morning was that we're a family together. And there are many images that the church should really express. And we're actually described as being a metaphorical language. We're described as being an army. We're described as being a, a building. We're described as being a temple. We're described as being a family. All the rest of it. There's lots of descriptions given to the church wanting us to really see who it is that we are. We're called priests. We're called a royal priest. We're called a holy nation. And so there is a sense of belonging, there's a sense of community, there's a sense of connecting uh, that is so vital. And that becomes a culture in the life of the church. And so what it is, is that we're a community. And so when we don't become community, then of course we have a scripture that draws our attention to it and says, let's not neglect the gathering together of the saints. So there is a culture throughout scripture that would encourage what it is that we do. You've got the smaller meeting, and then you get the bigger meeting, but there's different dimensions of faith attached to both, and so therefore you need both. Um, and so culture is, is, a, is a vital thing, but this culture of generosity, if I read the Bible, I see God is a global God, for God so loved the world, so that means he loves everyone. That really is an expression of generous heart, isn't it? If you read on a little more, you'll see God is generous. I mean, he revealed his name. The most holy name that we read about in Scripture is the name Yahweh, which is translated Jehovah, which means the self-existent one. In other words, God doesn't have a need of anything. God is totally complete in himself. But he looks at us and he says, to you I will be, and he uses that covenant name, that powerful name, but then he associates an expression of action with that particular name. So he'll say, Jehovah Jireh. In other words, that means I am the Lord who will provide for you. And so wherever you see God's people, what you see is a God who is generous towards them, a God who initiates the response. He doesn't wait for them to get good before he responds to them. No, no, no. He just comes along to Abraham, this pagan. Abraham has done nothing righteous in his life. Not righteous as you and I understand righteousness to be. Abraham was just an individual. God talks to him and says, will you believe that I'm God? This is how easy it is. And Abraham said yes. And then the Bible says, and righteousness was imputed or given to him right there. I think, gee, that's incredible. So actually what you're telling me is Abraham did nothing. And you've got Paul who writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, this thing about salvation, you need to know, it's not by works. You cannot do anything to become righteous or to get saved. Now, you must know that that argument was very unsettling to the church in Ephesus or to the hearers of that message. You must remember that the, the letter to the Ephesians church was read by many other Christians as well. And the prevailing thought was that which Aristotle had introduced into the world. To be righteous, you need to do good things. So on Monday, I'm good, therefore I'm righteous. On Tuesday, I'm good, therefore I'm righteous. On Wednesday, 
I'm not so good. Well, according to Aristotle, then you were unrighteous. And so unrighteousness and righteousness was very much part of your behavior. So Paul comes along and he says, hey, you know what? This Christianity thing, it's not about works. Look at me. He says, I was the worst of all the sinners, but God initiated a moment where he came to me. I'm Paul. I'm the one that's killing people. I'm not doing apostle things. I'm not doing good, nice, fancy things. I'm killing Christians. And God initiates my salvation by coming to me and speaking to me and say, Paul, Saul rather, that was his name before he became Paul. Why are you persecuting me? So you've got this thing of, that's amazing. It's not about good works. And yet there are many religions today. And you look at all the main religions, they all talk about good works and about doing good things. And Christianity is, and Christianity is free. And so the culture of generosity in terms of our eternal life and our salvation is written into the very beginning fabric of the gospel. That's what's, the good, that's what's so good about the good news. That's what's so good about the gospel is we don't have to work for it. It's given to us. It's free. Freely you received, so therefore freely we should give out. And so what I'm wanting you to see is that this culture of generosity is written into the very fabric 101 gospel, 101 Christianity is a generous God, and we find ourselves responding out of gratitude and appreciation to this generous God. And so we talk about, I guess, lots of things about the Lordship of Christ. We sing about the Lordship of Christ, as we have just done. But when it comes to our finances, I find that we become very silent we actually are very quiet. You know what? This is really something that you don't need to know about. I was chatting with Dan just prior to the meeting, and I just thought, you know, in the scriptures, you've got this exercise, this culture, this habit of bringing what they call the tithe. Now, the tithe is 10% of your income, the 10% of the first fruits of what it is that you earn. It's not 8%, it's not 5%, it's 10%. And so what you find happening is, because the community back in those days was very much a farming community. Now, of course, in Jesus' time, they were still tithing because he actually draws attention to it. And if anything, his conversation around the tithe, all it does is it doesn't introduce it into the New Testament. It just ratifies what already existed in the First Testament. And so um, what you find happening is you think of the vocations that were around in Jesus' time. Well, we do know that you have Matthew who was a tax collector, so clearly accountants, there was a job for you. We do know that there were fishermen, so clearly if you were a fisherman and uh, there was a job for you. We do know that there was a zealot, in other words he was a mercenary, so maybe there was a job for him. We do read about a centurion, and we do know that if you're in the military then you do get wages. Well that's certainly, some passages of the scripture tell us that much. We do know that Joseph, Jesus' father, was a carpenter. And so you can imagine that Jesus' first experience at working would have been around carpentry. But yet, when it came to the tithe... The tithes was something that you couldn't hide. They didn't have an EFT. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have internet. And when Jesus went to church, do you know where he sat? It was close to where he could see what was going into the offering. How do I know that? Because he noticed that there was a woman who put all that she had into the offering. You know the story about the woman who gave the mite? which in those days was the form of currency, which really wouldn't have had much value to it, but it was all she had. So she gave more than just the tithe, but how did Jesus know that? Because he saw it. He saw the rich people putting in their money. 
And so giving wasn't necessarily a hidden thing. And if you were to go back even generations before, you know, Dan, come help me with this bag of millies. This is my tithe. Can't carry it, but maybe two of us can get it there. So Dan knows exactly Ash's tithing this week. Are you with me? I'm trying to get you to see something here. So we might talk about the wonderful song that we sang in church about Jesus being Lord of my life. But maybe, Jesus, I love you, but not my money, please, you know. <laughs> Don't take my money. But Jesus, I surrender all, but, but not my money, you know. When in actual fact, what's up with me to come in and say, hey, Dan, just remember, let's tithe, man. Let's be tithers. Let's build this culture of tithing. It was not something that we can hide. Okay, I'll just leave that with you because it's not really where I'm going. I just did it simply to provoke some thinking. But um, I think generosity begins, first of all, and this is the first slide coming up, is generosity is putting me in a position where I can honor God with that with which he has spoiled me with. Or given. If you look at every single offering, every single expression of giving in the scriptures, you see, sometimes what we do is we just draw a line because we've got this thing called the old covenant and we've got this thing called the new covenant. And so old means it's old. Nobody wants to be old fashioned, everybody wants to be new fashioned. And so we're really into this new thing here. And so what we've done is we've very deliberately dichotomized. We say, well, that's old and this is new, so let's live in the new. This is where all the grace and the freedom is. When we do that, we're simply suggesting that all of what's written in the old is obsolete now, and so therefore we don't look at it, we now look at the new. That's not true. We should rather see this as the first testament, and this is the new testament. Because in the first, which we now refer to as the old, I'm not suggesting you can't refer to it as that, I'm just wanting to get you to understand something here, is that there is so much that actually follows through and carries into the new that we need to be embracing. And one of the subjects that actually you hear very little about in the new is on the subject of worship. You can pinpoint, you can color in. It doesn't take you long. When you go through the New Covenant, the New Testament, and you start to look at the subject of worship, you can find the passages. It's very easy. But when you want to look at worship in the Old Covenant or the First Testament, you're going to find it's all over here. My goodness, everywhere. And so how wrong it would be for us just to ignore that, man, there's so much about worship that's here that needs to be carried through into the new covenant because we have a better understanding once we take the entire scripture as a whole. The same thing happens when it comes to finances. We kind of draw a line. Oh, Ash, you know, you mentioned that we're tired and some of you are thinking, oh, that's old covenant. Was it? Well, I don't think so. In fact, anyone here sitting who has any theological understanding, they'll tell you straight out, um, sorry, it's not under the law. If anything, what the law does is it ratifies the tithe. Because the tithe existed way before, 400 years before the law. And the law only begins in Exodus chapter 20, where you get the Ten Commandments. And then there and after, you'll find that there's a whole lot of other bits and pieces that start to happen. But 400 years before that was a season of grace. How do I know that? Well, all I have to do is look at Abraham. Abraham, I told you, he's a pagan. He's doing nothing righteous at all. God just arrives and simply says, I'm going to give you salvation. All you have to do is just trust me that I'm God. I'm Jehovah. I'm Yahweh. If you trust me, then I'll make a covenant with you. 
And so you get that. He makes a covenant with him. But what you'll find with Abraham is there's a situation that goes down. We're not going to look at the scripture because I'm wanting to move on and make a few other points. But what happens is he has a moment of great conquest. And so now he's got his spoil. And who comes out to meet him? One of the kings that comes out to meet him and to celebrate his victory is a king called Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the name means the right king. Where was he from? He was from a place called Salem, which was the early name given to Jerusalem. And what does Salem mean? It means shalom. That's where we get our word peace from. So he is the right king of and from the place of peace. Doesn't that sound a little like Jesus? So you know what he brings? He brings bread and wine for them to enjoy. Doesn't that sound a little bit about, oh, is this now the prototype of the Jesus who was to come? And so what Abraham does in celebration and in gratitude of his victory, he shares that moment. He gives a tenth of the spoil to Melchizedek. It's simply declaring a dependency because Melchizedek is described as being the high priest of the most high God. Go and read it in the Bible. And so that's where we get our law of first mention. In theology, that's what you're going to learn about. One of the first things they'll teach you is if you want to establish a doctrine, then go and see where it was first mentioned. And so the first mention we have is not under the law, but it's pre the law, 400 years pre the law, in this period of grace. A man who will tell you, gee, all I did was just believe God. I didn't do anything. And here God becomes my most high God. And look at the blessings that Abraham enjoyed. And so he was the one that established it. So you've got that moment. We carry that through into when the law is established. And there you find that Isaac ratifies exactly the same thing. And so you begin to see it. And then you come to Malachi. And you find that actually there's this text which is written. And we'll have a look at it in a moment. But let me move on a little. I think worship, I think generosity really is an expression of my worship. Because as the people of Israel, they were so overwhelmed by God's goodness, by God's generosity. So they would have these offering times, Thanksgiving offering, peace offering, sin offering, you know. And in every one of those, there was just this great, tremendous, God, you've been so good. Look at how you've blessed me. And so because you've blessed me, I'm going to give you my best, and I know that you'll take care of the rest. And so there was this gratitude. Giving was always associated to the plenty that God had given to them. Always. Some of you may remember the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric Little, a great athlete of his time. Probably the equivalent to the Hussein Bolt. The only difference being is that Eric Little also ran the 400 meters. And Eric's parents were missionaries in China. And he had a brother. And the parents taught the two sons. They said, you know what, if you honor God... He'll honor you. And Eric became this athlete of note. It wasn't just a, a sprinter. Many people don't know this, but Eric Little was actually a full international Scottish rugby player. Was capped seven times on the wing for Scotland. Very gifted man, and he knew that. But also carrying in his heart was the fundamental truth. Eric, if you honor God, God will honor you. And so that's what he embraced. He realized that as an individual, as an athlete, God had gifted him. God had blessed him with this abundance of talent. He was considered to be the fastest man in the world at that time, 1924. 
So guess what? The Olympics are happening in Paris. He gets chosen to represent the nation. And uh, those of you who know the story, you'll know that actually when it came to the 100 meters event, that was the one that he was favored to win was going to be on a Sunday. And Eric had grown up always believing that actually the Sunday was the Lord's Day. And so given all of the talent and all of the appreciation for what it was that God had given him, he didn't feel that it was right in his own heart to go and compete. And so sometimes we do things that we want to do and we neglect things that actually matter. And so what he did was he just decided, he said, you know what, God's blessed me with this talent. And if you know the story, this is his story. I mean, he's an incredible guy. Even after all of his athletic prowess and all of what it was that he achieved, he still went himself and worked in the mission field. And that's where he died, in China. Remarkable man. And so what he did is he stood his ground and he just said, listen, you know what, I'm going to have to withdraw from an event that, yes, maybe I'm favored to win. And he withdrew. And so on the day, the paparazzi are just following him. And so what does he do? He goes to church. He's given an opportunity to preach in Paris. Opens the Bible. Where does he open the Bible? I think it's coming up behind me. Is it? It's coming up. It will. <laughs> or maybe it isn't. He opens the Bible to Isaiah 40. And he reads this. He says, don't you know anything? This is a man who had a conviction. God, you have blessed me. You have given me incredible talent, and I'm not going to prostitute my gifting just for a gold medal because this is a conviction that I hold dear. Jesus Christ, you are Lord. So look at the scripture he reads. Now, this is fact. Now, this goes down in the newspapers. This is what the paparazzi report, okay? It says, God doesn't come and go. See, medals do. God lasts. Medals don't. He's creator of all you can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out. He doesn't pause to catch his breath. He knows everything inside and out. He energizes those who get tired, gives fresh strength to dropouts. For even young people tire and drop out. Young folk in their prime stumble and fall. Was that a bit prophetic for him? But those who wait upon God get fresh strength. They spread their wings and soar like eagles. They run and don't get tired and they walk and they don't lag. He walks out of the church, gathered around him photographers and one reporter says, Eric, do you have any regrets? His response is, yeah, I do. But I don't have any doubts. Powerful. That's the Olympics in 1924. But there's another story that comes out of the Olympics in 1924. And it's that of Bill Hammond. Uh, have I got that surname correct? I'll correct it. If it's wrong, because it's going to come up behind me. He is considered at the time to be the world's best canoeist. I don't know if you've ever seen the canoeing event where the dude's on one knee and he's kind of paddling, that kind of thing. If you go to London and you're down at the River Thames at any time, you'll see that that's what they do a lot of. Well, anyway, this man was considered to be the best at that in the world. Never been beaten. No one even ever tied with him. And so him and his mate get chosen for the Olympics, but he suddenly discovers that his wife is pregnant, and while he is in Paris at the 1924 Olympics, his wife is going to give birth to their son, Frank. And so he makes a decision. It's not like he can fly back. There were no jets that were flying from Paris to London back in those days, or from, uh, he's an American, from wherever he was staying in America, okay? And so what he does is 
he makes a decision. He says, I'm going to stay at home and give up my place in the Olympics. This is the world champion. This is the person who's guaranteed to get the gold medal. And so what happens is he, um, he's at his wife's bedside, and he gets a telegram, and his partner says, I've just won a gold medal. 1952 Olympics, Frank, the son, follows his dad and goes and gets chosen. Another telegram came, and this is how it reads. 20 years later, another telegram arrives. Dear Dad, thanks for waiting around for me. I don't know why I'm all chucked up about this, you know. Jeez. Thanks for waiting around for me to get born in 1924. I'm coming home with the gold medal you should have won. It was signed, your loving son, Frank. Frank Havens had just won the gold medal in the singles 10,000-meter canoeing event. Hey, Dad, you sacrificed for me. I'm indebted to you. You see, it's quite easy (laughs) to pursue things that we want, and then we forget things that matter. And in actual fact, Frank was born four days later after the telegram that had told him that his partner had just won gold. I wonder if, when we look at all of this, and I, I just have to say that there's something in me that, that if anything just says, God, I want you to be Lord over my finances. Let me throw this in as well. When Jesus is teaching on money, you go read it in, in Luke chapter 18. And he's teaching about unrighteous mammon. And then he talks about the money that actually you and I are going to get in our pockets. He says, he teaches this and he says, we need to be faithful with what it is that we get. He says, and so when we are faithful in the little that we get, he says, then God can release the much to us. But he says, actually, when it comes to finances, some of your money is not yours. Where did I get that from? Well, of course, someone brought him a coin and said, oh, I see Caesar's heads on this thing. And Jesus interrupts and says, yeah, well, you better give to Caesar's what Caesar's, because that belongs to Caesar. It doesn't belong to you. So pay your taxes. But my goodness, there's a whole chunky section here. Maybe that's yours. It's yours. Ownership. It's yours. It's the same with seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you. What's the context there? The context is finances. So it's not that God doesn't want you to have everything. Sometimes we think incorrectly, oh, I'm a Christian. I've got to give everything away. Listen, there's seasons where maybe God calls you to be generous. And there was a season expressed like that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, that's what happened. The church was just generous and they were liberal in their giving. It doesn't mean it's always like that. But there could be times when it's like that. And so seek first. In other words, get the values right. Seek first the kingdom means simply the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm putting my faith in you, God. I'm sitting here with my five little loaves and my two fish, and I'm looking at my needs out there. There's too much month at the end of my money. How can I give? How many of you have been in that situation? And then you look at what's in the budget, and there's some legitimate things. I'm looking after my parents. You know, in the nation that I come from, you have a, a culture which says that before a couple can get married, the husband has to pay a labola. So what it's led to today, this is a problem now, is they're not getting married because the dudes don't want to pay the labola or they haven't got the money for it. And so it results in a relationship that becomes ungodly and there's no blessing of God in it. And so you've got this thing that's in place. It's, they call it a tax that they have to pay. 
And so what we'll do is we'll have all of these things which seemingly sound so legit. And God says, well, if you want to attend to those things, why don't you seek first? Why don't you come and put your faith in me? Why don't you come and make a declaration of lordship as an attitude of worship? And see what I'll do. And so Jesus is teaching now. And he says this. He says, so some of what you've got is yours. And when you learn to steward well that which is not yours... He says, then you will discover, these are the words that he used, true riches. I don't know about you, but true riches for me, I'm intrigued. What is true riches? Is it more money? I think if I went to heaven and I said, God, what is true riches? He'd say, look around you. And there would be this huge... I would, you know, eyes not seen, ears not heard, the things that God has prepared for them. I would be gobsmacked at what's in heaven. And so true riches, clearly, if there was just a little release, if there was a puncture in heaven, and all of what I saw came down onto earth, I tell you what, I think that's what definition of true riches would be. And so it's not just money. I think there's an influence. When Jesus said, all things are possible to them who believe, what was he inviting us to do? Was to step into that realm and just say, well, you said it, Jesus. Were you just playing games with me? Or were you telling me that I can step into that realm and believe for all things are possible to him that believeth? And I'm understanding, oh, true riches, it's more than just money. True riches, yes, the light that shines furthest is brightest at its source. Why? Because this is a church that is walking in the true riches of God, which is not just money. I have a friend, a very good friend. You know, we kind of met each other when we were 13, surfing in same grade at school, different schools, competed together. I enjoyed his success. He enjoyed mine. Mine wasn't as great as his, but nevertheless, we were mates. Got married, had kids. You know, you kind of, that kind of friend, really good friends, even still to this day. I became a Christian at the age of 16. He didn't. And one day, we were adults. Phone me up, he said, Ash, something terrible has happened to my daughter. She's just been diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, I said, gee, I'm coming to see you. I remember walking into his house and sitting there, and the whole family was there. And I felt helpless. I, I, geez, don't look at me, you know, I'm just me. You know? But he said, Ash, of all the people I wanted to see, it was you. I said, you know, I'm just going to point you to the person who can heal. And he, he, he brought his maiden, and we sat down, and there was his young seven-year-old daughter with this death sentence on her. And collectively, we just prayed, and I just prayed a simple prayer, God, would you heal? You know, you walk out of those things, and it's not kind of like, it's not like a leg grew or an arm grew. or You know, there wasn't a visible miracle, but I just thought, oh, God, please do something, you know. And I met with him about a week later. And he said this to me, he said, you know, Ash, he said, as a businessman, he became very successful in business. He said, every night that I go to bed, he says, I have access. And he mentioned the amount of money that he's got access to. And he says, I do that because up to now, money's been able to solve all my problems. He said, for the, this is the first time that my riches are doing nothing for me. He says, I will give anything and even everything that I've got is not going to bring help to my daughter. He says, I've realized that only God can heal her. I said, that's true riches. That's true riches. And I said to him, well, wouldn't you like to receive Jesus? He said, yeah. God's still serving God today, and God has healed his daughter. Nadine told me the other day she's on Instagram with her. Yeah. 
Thank you, Jesus. She's just fallen pregnant. Got married. She asked me to do the ceremony. You see, that's true riches. So when we talk about tithing, I'm going to bring this thing to a close. We talk about tithing. That speaks specifically about bringing the tithe into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? Storehouse is the place where you get fed spiritually. I, I, you know, I've had situations where people have said, oh, well, you know what? Um, this person, hey, I've known them for so long, and you know, that's where I found Christ. And you know what? I kind of have been giving them my tithe. Are they the storehouse? No. So what ties you to them? Well, clearly, what I can see, they're not telling me this, but what I can see, it's just sentiment. It's just sentimental giving. There's no blessing in that. That's not the storehouse. The scripture doesn't say you just go and give to someone out there. I mean, literally, we went into one of these great malls that you've got, and you get those food courts. Oh, forgive me, I ate at a food court, I know. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and like you've got Wendy's over there, and there's a big queue at Wendy's, and then you've got London Company, whatever it is, London Park Company, fish. No one there, you know. <laughs> it's like going to Wendy's. And ordering as much as you like, and then just say, oh, listen, there's no one there. I'm going to go pay there, okay? They need the blessing. And so, catch you later. Off you go with the chow, and then you go to these guys, and you, you pay them. If you did that, you'd probably end up in jail, right? But yet that mentality exists amongst people, Christians. This is your storehouse. If this is your family and this is where God has connected you, ah, but you know what? I'm on a contract and I'm only here for a few months and then I'm going back. Where's your storehouse? Is it here or is it back home? You see, you could be interfering with what God wants to do with the people back home. And that sentimental giving, the moment they see you and you're their provider, then you are blocking their line of sight to a God who wants to bless them anyway. God doesn't depend on you to keep them alive. God's quite capable, and he wants to teach them something as well. So you've got to keep the people free. If my folks leave, I say, you go. Wherever you go, dial into the church. But you've got businessmen as well. There's one guy that's just moved off to Mauritius. What a curse he's been given. <laughs> but man, if you dial into a church, that's your storehouse. For however long you're there, just commit to them. You see, there's a principle here in play. Storehouse is where you actually get fed. And so for me, I think this thing of generosity, this thing of generosity is about worship. Really it is. This thing about tithing, it's about worship. It's literally me coming and saying, God, you've provided, you've blessed me, you really have. And so therefore, out of that response, I'm not teaching obedience here. You see, in, the, in, the, in this, this thing of money, I could teach it because if you read that text, and I don't have time, I'm doing a six-week series on this and I'm trying to fit everything in here to half an hour. If, if I look at this thing about given it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, then I can see that, wow, I can give and I can get blessed. But I don't think. That's kind of like the one degree off truth, Right? Then if I look at it this way, you know, if you, give, if you don't pay your tithes, the devourer is going to get you. That's in the Bible. But, but I don't think that that's what this is about. I think it's about being central and being, there's a plumb line of truth that simply says the reason why I'm generous is because I'm declaring and I'm visibly showing my, that I believe in the lordship of Jesus over my finances. It's a worship expression. 
That's what it is. It's a worship moment of me simply lifting up my heart and saying, God, you've blessed me. You've blessed me. And so I'm putting, doesn't look like I can afford to do this, God. There's too much month at the end of my money. There's too much. But I know that if I do this, then it seems that the windows of heaven, the true riches will be opened up. And indeed, this church will enjoy a greater, a greater level of blessing.